Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called Hidden Angels. The premise behind this series is to highlight certain people in our congregation who have done amazing things for other people. I hope you enjoy. And our first reading comes from the book of Genesis, the 39th chapter. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, This is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph, and whatever Joseph did, the Lord made prosper. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts. Chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. Peter has been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. And he did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went outside and walked along a lane, when suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're doing our sermon series, Hidden Angels. Each week we're highlighting someone from our congregation who we feel has done something extraordinary for other people. And so the way it works, if you've been here, you know that we watch a pre-taped interview. That interview lays the foundation for what we're going to be discussing for today. And then we're going to explore that topic from a social, cultural, and spiritual perspective. And then, of course, we ask the question, how is God asking us to live differently as a result of this information? So... Without further ado, let's turn to our interview for today. My name is Wendy Blank, and I've been here well over 40 years. And my name's Joe Lyon. Um, I've been here over 50 years, 53 years, I think, and it's been a great experience. have been looking at uh, 
Matthew 25 for many, many years. And we had ministries that were clothing ministries, food ministries, welcoming strangers, visiting the sick. But one thing we weren't doing was visiting those in prison. And so we had an opportunity to become involved in the PACE program, which is part of the SAFER Institute, which um, is responsible for tutoring prisoners. When we went in, we had, uh, we had two subjects. We had reading or we had analytical things. And uh, I took the analytical things, the math and so forth, and she took the reading. And she, she really touched people. The guys really liked Lois. Lois was a, a personality to him. I can remember one guy coming over and picking her up and giving her a hug, and he was a big boy, and giving, says, I'll never forget you. It's just kind of the roll of dice, uh, where you're born, where you go, and everything, and uh, a lot of those guys never had a chance. And there's still a lot of people in this world like that that uh, suffer. One of the activities that we did every once in a while was we had a celebration. Uh, we celebrated uh, the progress that um, the prisoners had made. And uh, our church was responsible for one of those celebrations. And so we uh, brought some jazz musicians, we brought some games, and then one of the inmates uh, volunteered uh, and said, let's do the dream. And we had no idea what the dream was, but we soon found out one of the uh, prisoners who volunteered, and this was someone who really was tutoring at an elementary level, gave a very passionate recitation of the I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King's speech. And it was so moving to us uh, to hear that and to hear how they're inspired and they hang on to that I Have a Dream speech. What we ended up choosing is wonderful. The family night and all of the, the various aspects of family night are very successful and we feel that we have been doing very well at that, but we think too we should look at the prison ministry as another way to follow that Matthew 25. We all should care about the prisoners. The prisoners have no avenue when they get really released from jail, generally they go back to their old habits. Now every now and then you'd find somebody, there was one guy when we first went, he, he was gonna serve his time, get married and move away. And we thought that's constructive. But generally it's, it's very hard for them to change their ways with job opportunities and everything. Um, and I think society needs to get a hold of that. All right, I want to say thank you uh, to Wendy Blank and Joe Lyon for being willing to be interviewed for this particular sermon. I remember when we were trying to figure out what was our mission going to be here at First Pres. Um, we had a bunch of people come out uh, and everybody gave their ideas of what they want to do. And I remember that Joe, he stepped up and he said, you know, we should think about doing the prison ministry again. And uh, Lois, his wife, took me aside afterwards and said, you know, 20 years ago, there were a number of us who would go down and tutor inmates in the Cook County prison system. And even though we didn't end up choosing that for our mission, we went with Family Night, 
I still think that it's an important ministry that we need to lift up and we need to shine a spotlight on. And I want to begin this morning by actually going back to something that Joe said in his interview, which I think is really important. He said, you know, it's just a roll of the dice. It's where you're born, it's where you go. A lot of those guys never had a chance, and there's still a lot of people who suffer in that way. And I think he's 100% absolutely correct. The likelihood of you being incarcerated in our country has a lot to do with where you're born and who you are born to. If you have ever taken time to look at the statistics around incarceration in America, it can be a very sobering experience to look at those. And I just want to take a brief glimpse of that from two different vantage points today. The first vantage point I want to look at it from is from the vantage point of income. So if we take a look, we find that the first 72%, 72% of the people in prison made under $22,000 five hundred dollars per year. The next thirteen percent made between twenty two five and thirty seven five, and then the remaining fifteen percent are over thirty seven thousand five hundred. Now what do these statistics tell you? It tells you that if you are poor, if you don't have a lot of money, you have an increased likelihood that you're going to end up in prison. Now the question is why? Are people who are poor, are they more likely to commit crime? No, that is not the case. What you find is that the vast majority of that 72%, those people, they are not in a position to be able to fight when they do commit a crime. So they can't afford lawyers. They can't afford to pay the fees and the court fines because most of them have committed minor crimes and misdemeanors. But because they can't afford those things, they can't afford the bail, they end up having to spend a lot of time in jail. Whereas most of us in here, if we got into the same kind of trouble, well, what we would do is we would pay the bail, we'd get our lawyers, and we'd just pay those fees and fines and go on with our lives. And so in this way, our prisons are kind of like a modern form of debtor's prison. If you are poor, you're going to be in a tough position. Now, Income is just one way to break down these statistics and to understand how you're going to fare in the court system. Another way is to look at it based on race and ethnicity. Now, in the best case circumstances, our prisons should be a reflection of our population within the U.S. So, for instance, white people, Caucasians, we make up 61% of the population of the U.S., and therefore we should probably make up 61% or thereabouts of the prison population, but that is not the case. We represent 39% of the prison population. You compare that with Hispanics, what you find with Hispanics is that they are 16% of the U.S. population and 19% of the prison population. And when you look at African Americans, they are 12% of the U.S. population and 40% of the prison population. And just so we're clear, that last statistic is absolutely crazy. To put this another way, if you are a white male, you have a 5% chance of ending up behind bars. Whereas if you are a black male, you have a 33% chance that at some point in your lifetime, you will end up in prison. So what this tells us is that in this country, in the United States of America, poverty and race, the combination of those two factors, they dictate a lot of how 
you are going to fare in the court system. And the statistics tell us that if you're wealthy and white, you're going to have a much better experience with the criminal justice system than if you're poor and black. Now, there's a lot of reasons why this happens, a lot of reasons why this occurs within our criminal justice system. And thankfully, there are a number of people who are trying to address this right now. There are people who are trying to reform it because the system is broken and it needs to be fixed. It shouldn't matter what your income is. It shouldn't matter what your race is. You should get a fair shot in a courtroom no matter what. And that needs to happen and it's not happening right now. And thankfully, there are people who are dedicating their lives to making sure that that gets fixed. So that's not what I really want to focus on today. What I want to focus on is what happens once a person is found guilty. What are the conditions like inside of our prisons? And what is the purpose of punishing someone for committing a crime? And I think by looking at all those various factors, I believe we can come to understand a little bit more clearly why what Joe Lyon did and what Wendy Blank did, why it's so important to our criminal justice system. So to frame this discussion that I want to have with you, I want to ask you a question. Is the purpose of prison to punish someone for having committed a crime, or is it to reform their behavior so they don't end up committing a crime again? Now take a look at that real quick. I want you to think about that for a second. What do you think is the purpose of prison. And I know some of you already are sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, can't it be both, Alex? Can't punishment lead to reform? And indeed, the concept of prison throughout human history has been exactly that. You, you commit a crime, we punish you, you go to prison, that's supposed to be an incentive for you to not commit crime again. True? True? I know it's rainy, but you can still be with me, okay? Are we there? All right. Okay. This is exactly what's happening in the story we read today from Acts. So Peter, he's in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason why he's in prison, what do they want him to do? They want him to rethink his actions, right? They want him to stop preaching the gospel. They want him to not do that again in the future. Now, of course, I think we all know that Peter's not going to stop preaching the gospel. Even if that angel hadn't freed him, I still think that he would be preaching the gospel of Jesus. Do you agree with me on that? You don't think when he left prison, do you, that he'd be like, you know what? You're right. I'm hanging up my cleats. You know, it was just, it was too much for me, and I'm not going to be preaching the gospel anymore. It's just, I can't do it. Is that, did that thought ever go through your mind in reading that? No, of course not. If anything, him going to prison is going to make him want to preach it more, right? Okay, so now if you read that story, and that's what you come away with based on him going to prison, why do you think that it wouldn't apply to other people who are going to prison? Think about it for a second. Don't you think that the same thing is going through their minds? And the statistics bear this out. It is rare for someone who has been incarcerated to be motivated to change their ways based on going to prison. In fact, more often than not, it only reinforces the beliefs and the behaviors that got them there in the first place. And the reason why this happens is because of the mentality that goes into why we send people to prison. Why do we do it? We do it because we want to remove somebody who's a threat from society. Is that true? All right. That's why we do it. And 
you can see this in the story of Joseph that we read this morning. So you know the story of Joseph, right? I mean, we've all been through Genesis a couple of times, right? So here's the thing. Joseph, he gets accused of the attempted rape of his master's wife. Immediately, he's a threat. So what are they going to do? They end up putting him in prison so that he cannot be a threat to anyone else. The idea of rehabilitating Joseph, even though he didn't commit the crime, the idea of rehabilitating him is secondary to him actually getting out of the general population so he doesn't hurt any more women. Now, this story, how old is this story? Thousands of years old, is it not? Okay, that mentality that got him into prison is the exact same mentality that we use today. And you can see this in how we allocate funds for our prison system. So the vast majority of the money that we put towards our prisons, the vast majority of that money goes towards housing and feeding prisoners. Very, very little, if any, is used for rehabilitation. Let me give an example. In New York State, the average cost to house and feed a prisoner for one year is $63,000. And by the way, that's an old statistic. It's probably a lot more now. It's probably 70, 75,000. By contrast, you could send a student to an Ivy League college for one year for that same amount of money. Just want to throw that out there. Now the same amount, so if you put them there, the amount of money that it costs to rehabilitate a prisoner for one year, provide rehabilitative education, is $2,000. Now if you give them this education, it reduces recidivism rates, and recidivism, by that, let me define it, means the likelihood that a convict is going to reoffend once they are released, it reduces recidivism rates by 60%. 60%. And yet, the state rarely, if ever, provides money for these rehabilitative education funds. This is why what Joe and Lois were doing with tutoring these inmates is so incredibly important. They're going in, and they're not just educating them. They're giving them a new chance at life. Because think about it. Giving them this knowledge, what does that do? It gives them the ability to get legitimate jobs when they leave prison so they don't end up having to do things that are illegal again, and they can provide for themselves and their families. And it also helps them to make better decisions when they leave so that once they're released, they don't end up behind bars again which, of course, is the whole idea with the rehabilitative education. And because there was no money being put towards that, they were depending on Joe and Lois and Wendy to get all of that done. Everybody who went down, you were that rehabilitative education for them. So let me ask you all a question. Do you believe that it is good when somebody goes to prison for that prisoner to be rehabilitated so that when they leave, they don't end up doing the same thing again? Would you agree that that would be a great outcome from prison? Yes. Is everybody here on the same page on that? Yep. Okay, I would assume so, right? So if that's going to be the case, if that's what we want to have happen, you've got to put the money behind it to make it happen. But as it stands right now, what we do within our prison system is that we want to get undesirables off the streets. And by the way, we do that better than anybody in the world. The United States imprisons more people than any country in the world. We imprison 2.2 million people. 2.2 million people. That's more than China, which has four times our population, and Russia, which is a semi-totalitarian state 
run by Vladimir Putin. Now, this influx of prisoners has created the so-called prison industrial complex. What I mean by this is that prisons are no longer solely the function of the state. It has become a business where business enterprises have gotten into this, and it's extraordinarily profitable. Now, to give you a sense of how these businesses have kind of run amok and run out of control, you can look at the large-scale construction of solitary confinement prisons in the U.S. So, solitary confinement, in case you're not familiar with it, is utilized when a prisoner is deemed too dangerous to be among the normal prison population. So what does that tell you? If you're put in solitary confinement, what should that say to you? You're violent, right? You're a person who we can't let you be around it, and we got to get you out so that everybody else doesn't get hurt. Does that make sense to you, what I'm talking about? You with me? Okay. Because if you look at the statistics on this, and this is really important, what you find is that the majority of people who are in solitary confinement did not come to prison for committing a violent crime. So, if they didn't come to prison for committing a violent crime, how did they get there? How did they get into solitary confinement? Well, it has to do with the fact that our prisons are so filled with people that overcrowding is a problem. And what that means is violent offenders are placed with nonviolent offenders. And violent offenders, they target nonviolent offenders. And they get into altercations with them. And in the prison system, you're all the same. It doesn't matter who you are. And if you get into a fight, they're going to treat you the same way, which means the violent offender and the nonviolent offender, they both end up in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is, by most measures, the cruelest form of punishment we have in our criminal justice system. Solitary confinement began in the United States in 1829 with the construction of Eastern State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. At the time, this was the most expensive prison in the world, and it was designed so that each prisoner would have their own individual cell and they would be totally isolated from all other human contact. I've visited this prison before, and when I went on the tour, what they explained was they had to create new technology for the time. So one of the things that they did was they actually created an internal heating system to make sure that all of the cells were heated because it gets really cold in Pennsylvania in the winter. And then they also created internal plumbing within the jails and the prisons at this time, or within the cells there. And you have to realize that in 1829, the White House didn't even have internal plumbing. <laughs> so this prison, it was created, and it had amenities that most people in the United States didn't even have at that time in their houses. Now, the inspiration behind creating this prison actually came from the practices of monks. Because Monks, their spirituality was shaped by spending large amounts of time in solitude. And so the hope or the belief was that by spending this time in solitude, the prisoners would become repentant. They would repent for what they had done. And this is where the word penitentiary comes from. They are penitent, right? And this would change them around. And so the idea was you stick them in this cell by themselves. They have only their thoughts and a Bible to keep them company. Now, because there was no electricity at this time, in every single cell there was a glass skylight. And the skylight was termed the eye of God. Because the idea was that God was always watching over you. 
So this is the circumstances in which they found themselves. That's an actual cell that they would have lived in. Now, this was very innovative for the time, extraordinarily innovative. And as a result, 300 prisons around the world actually copied this design. And the Christians who were promoting this, they really hoped and believed that this type of solitary confinement would actually transform the prisoners. It would change them into law-abiding citizens. So what you have to appreciate is that the penitentiary, its fundamental goal was actually not punishment, that it was actually reform. They wanted to rehabilitate these prisoners. But sadly, that is not what happened. Most of the people who were confined to Eastern State Penitentiary went crazy. They literally went mad. And today, we know why. Stuart Grassian is one of the earliest researchers to look into the psychological effects of solitary confinement. And what he discovered is that being in solitude for long periods of time, it actually changes the biochemistry of your brain. And what he noticed among the prisoners who he interviewed is that they suffered from hallucinations, paranoia, delusions. They also were hypersensitive to touch and to sound. They had extreme insomnia where they couldn't sleep. They showed signs of PTSD. And they had these uncontrollable feelings of rage or fear. And if you're wondering, you know, why is it that these people end up spending so much time? It's because when they get into solitary, even if they did not commit a violent crime, they lose their impulse control and they end up hurting themselves or other people. And so as a result of this, they stay longer and longer and longer in solitary, which compounds the problem. So the psychological effects of all of this from being in solitude, it leads people to end up hurting themselves. And to give you a sense of how much they inflict self-harm, you know that when people go to prison, they commit suicide, right? I mean, you're probably aware of that. The prison population is only 5% made up of people who are in solitary confinement. And yet they represent half of all prison suicides. I want to let that sink in for a second. Think about that. The 5% who are in solitary confinement, that's half of all prison suicides. But solitary doesn't just stay with you when you're there. It follows you out into the world. And perhaps one of the best examples of this is the story of Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was walking down the street. It was in the evening. He was in the Bronx in 2010 when he was arrested by police for allegedly stealing a backpack. A store owner had misidentified him and confused him with another black teenager. But because Khalif could not afford a lawyer and afford bail, he ended up having to go to Rikers Island while he awaited his trial. Now, he spent three years on Rikers Island awaiting trial for this offense because there's so much backlog in the Bronx court system. Now, before he went in, what you need to know is that Khalif was not associated with any gangs. And so what this meant was that he was a prime target for people once he went in, and he got into altercations with people who were attacking him on Rikers Island. And as a result, he ended up in solitary confinement. And of the three years he was there, he spent 800 days in solitary confinement. By the time he eventually got to trial for this offense, the judge looked at the offense, looked at how much time he had been in prison, 
and said, you know what, if you plead guilty today, you can go home for time served. And you know what Khalif said? No, because I am not guilty of committing this crime. The judge was stunned because what that meant was he had to send him back to Rikers Island. Eventually, the prosecutor just dropped the case. Khalif Browder went home on May 29, 2013, but he was a changed person at that point. He suffered from severe depression, and he had trouble interacting with the people around him. And his case was so extreme that it became known, and he got interviewed by reporters, and this is something that he said. He said, I'm mentally scarred right now. That's how I feel, because there are certain things that changed about me, and they might not go back. On June 6, 2015, two years after his release, Khalif Browder lost his battle with depression and committed suicide. Now that should make you angry. And if you're not angry, you need to do some soul searching because that is unconscionable. And you want to know why it's unconscionable? Because right now, as we sit here, right now, there are between 80 and 100,000 people in solitary confinement in the United States. Right now, 80 to 100,000 people are sitting alone in that room dealing with those psychological effects. We put more people in solitary confinement than any nation in the world. And given that we know what the psychological effects of solitary confinement are, I find it unconscionable that we allow it to continue. And given that Christians are the one that helped bring it to the United States and to create it here, I think it's incumbent upon us to eliminate the practice. Which brings me back to something that Wendy said when you were hearing her interview. In her interview, what she said is that Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that it is our responsibility to go and visit the prisoners. You've read that before. I'm sure you've seen that. He says that that is what we are supposed to do. And the question I want to leave us with this morning is, how are we going to live in to that commandment? And I think there's two ways that we can do it. One way that we can do this, which I think is very important, is that we can stand up and speak out against the practice of solitary confinement. And I think that that's so important. I'm doing that today because I really feel moved that we need to do that. And you can do it too. We can write letters to our politicians and tell them to end this practice. And today, if you want to, I would hope that you would spend a little time. We're going to have tables out there in the narthex. You can go out. You can write a letter to your politician, and you can tell them to end this practice. And we are focusing on the federal prison system because state is state to state. And the fact is that here in Illinois, they are trying to curb the practice quite a bit, which is good. But we need to focus on the federal level where it happens more than anywhere else. The second thing that we need to do is that we need to ask ourselves, how can we actually do the thing that Jesus asks us to do? And I want to ask you a question. Do you understand why Jesus asks us to go and visit prisoners? Because they need hope. They need hope. And I don't want to minimize the fact that many of these people have broken the law, and some of them have done extremely horrible things. I know that, and I'm not trying to say that everybody in there is an angel. But what I am saying is that if we want the prison system to be about reformation so that they actually change when they come out and they don't go back to their old ways, we need to be there for them. That is our role, because there weren't people over there for them before. That's why they're in this situation right now. They need to believe that they can rise above being called a convicted felon. 
And the way we do that, the best way we can do that is through education. Wendy talked about the PACE program. That program is still in existence today. It's a great program. And I hope that at a bare minimum, we would support that program through our mission committee by giving them some funds. But I also hope that some of us in here might feel moved that we might want to spend time with them, tutoring them the way that Joe and Wendy did 20 years ago. These people need to know that there are others out there who care for them. And remember, in the story you read this morning, Joseph, how does he make it through his time in prison? He makes it through because God is working through the people around him to get him through this time. And I believe that we can do that for the people who we find in our society who are in prison today. Do you believe that our God is a God of reformation? Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? Do you believe that our God is a God of restoration? Well, if you believe that to be true, and we want our prisons to be about reformation and restoration, then it is incumbent upon us to bring that reformation about. And I hope that you're with me on this one, because truly, their lives depend on it. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.